Hi, folks. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories of learnings and inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley, a people and culture strategist specializing in diversity, equity, inclusion, and people analytics. And I'm joined today, and I'm joined every day or every show by my co-host, Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. Nadia, how are you? Welcome. Hello, Rob. How are you this week? I'm doing great. I'm excited. Ready for another great week, another fantastic week. How are you doing? Same. I'm doing good. I um, I was thinking of a question to ask you. Yeah. And, you know, I always feel like this question might tell a lot of a person, and I'm curious, what was your first concert that you ever went to? Oh, well, I don't know what it will say about me. I'm trying to decide. I think that the first concert that we went to... Like you mean like son's parents like as no, a like, teen yeah yeah like when you were like a kid when you totally. could make a decision yeah, yeah. about where you wanted to go to so I think it was Soundgarden, Pantera, oh. and Skid Row all together at McNichols what? Arena in Denver. What does that, that say about me? Like, it actually sounds very intense. Was it good? Like, how when, old were you? When I was a kid, so I was, I was probably, you know, 12, 13, somewhere in that range. Okay. And so you could actually go to concerts like like, like big arena shows for 10 bucks. So I think that the oh, radio station cheap. was like 107 point something. And so it was like $10.70. And so that's yeah. something you could never do today. Right. So, yeah. So you could, so totally. it was like, a, it was not an investment. Like you didn't have to really be that into the bands that you, that you wanted to go check totally. out. You know? Totally. How about you? What was oh, yours? Oh, that's so your funny. First one? I remember going to a new kids on the block concert with my mom, my sister and my cousin at what, whatever Gillette was before it was the Fox Forest stadium. Yeah. Um, in like, I'm talking about like the, the probably early like the late 80s yeah i think it was like 89 nice yeah and i actually i remember bits and pieces but i remember it being a really fun show <laughs> and what does that say NKO about you tv that i'm still a boy band <laughs> fan which is so true so you're just super cool <laughs> yeah that i'm super cool huh. they're doing like retours of nk otv and like 98 degrees and in sync and all these like i'm loving it <laughs> Yeah, my son really, really likes the uh, one of the. I think it's uh, like a Backstreet Boys song that every yeah. everyone's he'll play, and I'm just like, don't do that. That's a terrible idea. That's but but uh, whatever. That's funny. So should we get to the deet? Yeah, let's 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 get into the deets. Okay, why don't I go first here? Um, layoffs at Microsoft. So. According to NPR, Microsoft is the latest large tech company to announce layoffs. Um, 10,000 employees to be exact. Yike. Microsoft is just one among many other tech company uh, layoffs that are doing layoffs. Amazon, as you recall, laid off 18,000 employees. Mm. Facebook cut 11,000 positions. Twitter. um, Well, you know, the list goes on and on. Rob, this is probably going to piss you off. But last quarter... Microsoft reported nearly eighteen billion dollars. I saw that. I thought that was a in profit. I was like, he's gonna, he's gonna be so mad about this information. Well, I thought it was, I thought it was the yearly profit, and it was the quarterly profit. So it yeah. was the quarterly yeah, profit. Keep going. Tech relies heavily on immigrant workers, and when you're on a visa that's tied to your job, and you're laid off, and then the clock starts ticking, you know, for you to find another employer. 
that will sponsor you. I think this is this is just really impacting to not only the employee but to families, right? Sure. And so I think that's just something to to think about. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, there's a couple of things, right? So there's the obviously the Microsoft angle, but also there's the question of, of immigration policy, right? Which is a big sticking point in our political discourse. So it's not a system that we have. I think that we the way you laid it out, if you're a highly skilled worker, you're very specialized, it seems really difficult to find another job if you're laid off in 60 to 90 days, which is what a lot of these folks have, certainly when times are tough or as, as a recession uh, closes in or if we enter some sort of a recession. So I think that with our current administration, it's actually much better than the previous administration on some of these issues, which that previous administration tried to do away entirely with the H-1B visa program. But it's another example of how, you know, immigration policy is really global business competitiveness policy, and we really mm -hmm. refuse to engage in it in this country. And so we have such an opportunity to create an immigration policy that makes sense, that makes us more competitive globally, that makes us more humane and moral as a country. So it just that would make us a better country overall, and we refuse to do it. And Absolutely. The reason we refuse to do it is the intransigence of the Republican Party on this particular issue. Right. Oh, and so Robbie's that is gone. like, yep. All right. No, I mean, there's, there's really no way yeah. around it. And so, sure. Um, yeah. So I had a lot of the same thoughts. And then, and then obviously there's the Microsoft aspect of it, the $18 billion they made in the third quarter. Unreal. Of I was last like, year. what is happening? So hopefully yeah. they're doing some creative things for the folks that are affected by this, that are uh, H1B visa holders. And hopefully helping them, those that are displaced. And, and they certainly have the cash on hand to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So, Nadia, Nadia, I have a question for you. Yeah. What if diversity oh trainings are doing more harm than good? That is not something Ooh, that I... When I'm right, I am right. <laughs> okay? Yeah. I'm not always right, so that, but when I'm right... That's not just uh, Nadia speaking. That's a headline from the New York Times this week. So yeah. what we're talking about is if you missed our prediction episode last week, Nadia predicted the death of DEI trainings in last week's episode. One week later, boom, they're dead. They're just completely dead. They're like the, <laughs> the paddles are out. The article points out the research suggests that DEI training is a high cost and unproven at best and potentially damaging intervention at worst. All the things that we've said on this show in various ways, and we've had other guests that have said so as well, the best part in that article was Dr. Robert Livingston of Harvard said that what does work is a focus on actions and behaviors rather than on hearts and minds, uh, and that it's more important to diagnose specific problems and develop targeted strategies to solve them. So I, sure. I thought it was, I was great. There were some, some things that, uh, you know, obviously sometimes I, I will actually go out on a limb and defend DEI trainings. If you do the detailed analysis of the understanding of what the problems are in the current state and training is a solution for a very targeted problem, then I think it, it certainly can be very effective. What, what did you think? Thanks for bringing this up. I like the article was really interesting. And of course, it was a buzz amongst our colleagues um, all last week. And in many regards, I found what um, the author was saying holds true, right? Like DEI trainings, are not the sole solution. And like you said, they sh it really should be targeted. It should be a targeted solution based off of whatever current state analysis work you've done. What I will say is that DEI training, and this, this is a shout out to 
any sort of, I have, we have many colleagues who are instructional designers who are learning development professionals and much of the work they do do is research-based. And it is when you're designing a training or program, you're typically designing it for an adult learner, you know, in the workplace. Mm -hmm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm saying not, you know, not for school or uh, for any sort of educational curriculum. So I do think there are components of awareness building and we design these things in a manner that it is just for awareness, right? Training has so many different aspects and components to it. And when you're looking at it from an instructional design, you're always incorporating, there's going to be pre-work, there's going to be post-work, there's going to be peer-to-peer -peer work. There's going to be work that needs to be done because mm -hmm. the learning doesn't just end in the classroom, right? And that's where the behavioral shifts come into place play. And so I think it's, I, I thought the article did, um, it was interesting. I also noticed though, when there were references to quotes, they weren't really citing particular references or back to any sort of literature or studies that were done. I do think this is, it was correctly placed as an op-ed, right? Like mm -hmm. it was an opinion. It's one person's opinion. And so I think that it was a, it's a great conversation starter for DEI practitioners and folks in the talent management space because of, it applies to what do you do outside of training because training cannot be the sole solution. I will reiterate this to the day I die. My colleague Amanda, we said this on season one, my colleague Amanda always says that she cannot send someone to the island of training and then expect them overnight to change behaviors. It does not happen. We, we are humans. That does not happen. You know, I agree. We're going to focus on actions and behaviors, and this is what we've been promoting all along. Yeah. So, yeah. Great piece. Yeah, I do worry. Uh, you know, the one thing I would say is I do worry when a headline like that comes out, and you know, obviously, <laughs> people don't read the entire thing, and so that's something that yeah. the anti woke crusaders may latch onto Run with it and, totally. and 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 misrepresent what that article is saying, and and certainly you know the, the perspective that we have uh, as well. So. Uh, so anyway, um, but definitely worth checking out the article and a lot of great points in there as well. Absolutely. So this third piece here, um, according to the New York Times back in October 2022, an adjunct professor at Hamline University warned students multiple times before showing an image of Prophet Muhammad created in the 14th century. Many Muslims believe that is prohibited from viewing visual representations of Prophet Muhammad, but historians of Islamic art said that images of the Prophet are regularly shown in art history classrooms without incident across the globe. After the professor shared the picture, a Muslim student complained to administrators. The professor was told that she would no longer be teaching that art history course in the spring. An email to students and faculty from a senior administrator, I believe it was the diversity officer, as well as I believe the university's president co-signed a statement saying that um, respect for the students in the online class should have superseded academic freedom um, and cited that it was Islamophobic. This was controversial, not just probably on that campus, but also within the Muslim communities uh, across the nation. Healthy discourse occurred, I think. So CARE, which is the Council on Islamic Relations, took a different took a different position. The national care took a different position of that than their chapter in Minnesota, which is where Hamline University is located. Mm. MPAC, which is a national Muslim public affairs council, put out a statement in support of the professor. Um, and, you know, even among Muslims of various sects of Islam, 
Um, some have a problem with the depiction and some don't. Um, and I also want to note that this was not a cartoon. This was, I believe, a classic Persian painting that has been shared in many art history classes, again, across the, the world um, and amongst different sects of um, Islam. So it was quite interesting. I had my own personal kind of reflections on it. But um, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I'd like to hear your perspective, your your reflections as well. I mean, I, I think I was yeah. very interested to hear what you had to say, because I am, as you know, not religious uh, at, at all. And yeah. so I read the article. I had some questions about context. So I was, I think in the article, they lay out all the steps the professor took to protect students that might find the discussion and the piece objectionable. But that sure. doesn't necessarily account, and again, context, right? We don't, like, that doesn't account for the environment that was created prior to the incident. And so the student says mm -hmm. that they felt pressured to participate. Again, I'm not sure why. But right. I think it could be an important part of the story if you actually talk to that student, if there were other comments, if there were, you know, other gestures, other things that uh, were revealed to the student, uh, a lack sure. of respect for religion, then perhaps that could have been an issue as well. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on a personal note, I really struggled with this. Uh, when it happened, I was texting with my family and friends, um, even my perf my current professors and classmates about it, because I was torn between the academic freedom, the responsibility the professor took. It sounded like this professor took so many measures to warn the students um, about it being perhaps triggering. Like you said, maybe the culture um, or the climate within the classroom or within campus was not really supportive of Muslims. So again, I was torn uh, because, yeah, some Muslims absolutely find it offensive to portray um, the prophet um, and look look at it as a sign of Islamophobia and and may consider it a hate crime. All I know is that I'm a big believer in healthy um, and safe discourse and I'm also a big believer in accountability, and that does not necessarily mean firing someone or cancel culture. To me, it means what's the behavior that we're trying to adjust or change. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in many regards, I'm not necessarily certain that that happens um, on campus at the, at this particular university. I, I'd be curious to see what happens um, down the road if this is resolved, or I believe the professor is actually um, planning to sue the university. So um, be curious to see what happens here. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a really interesting story. And thanks for, and again, that's, uh, I'm out of my depth on that one. So I really appreciate you, you weighing in. So uh, that's all we have for this week. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back with Dr. Tiffany Smith. Welcome back, folks. This week on Inclusive Collective, we are welcoming our guest, Dr. Tiffany Smith. Dr. Smith is a director of research and career support for the American Indian Science and Engineering Society, ACES. Dr. Smith is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma and is also a descendant of the Muscogee Creek Nation. At ACES, she manages several grant-supported research-related projects and conducts research related to Indigenous students and professionals in STEM disciplines. She provides oversight, strategic leadership, management, and overall direction of ACES's research and related projects as an integral part of the program's department. Dr. Smith has previously worked in higher ed, presented nationally on indig Indigenous higher education topics, serves on multiple boards, and most recently um, has been a keynote at the Women in Engineering Proactive Network 2022 Equity in STEM. 
Her scholarship and research is focused on utilizing indigenous methodologies and seeking to decolonize academic spaces, particularly in STEM fields. Dr. Smith, we are very fortunate to have you on Inclusive Collective Podcast. Welcome. Wendell, thank you so much. It's my joy and pleasure to be here to see you, Nadia, and to meet you, Rob. Thank you so much for the invitation to be on this podcast. Yeah, it's so great to have you, Dr. Smith. Can we just start off? Can you just give us some idea of the magnitude of the challenge, uh, the gap in representation or context around the disadvantage with regard to STEM in Indigenous communities? Absolutely. So first, I want to say Sio Nagata. Um, that's hello, everyone, in my language. I'm Cherokee and Muscogee, as Nadia mentioned. I'm from what is now known as Oklahoma. Um, I think it's important to center place in where my feet are planted. So where I currently live, learn, lead, and in zooming in today um, for you all is from the southwest part of the state, which sits on the lands of the Comanche, Osage, and Wichita and affiliated tribal nations. But now in modern day, um, Oklahoma is actually home to 39 sovereign tribal nations. Mm -hmm. So it's my pleasure to be here. And fortunately, I'm only about two and a half hours from one of my tribal nations, the Cherokee Nation. Um, So it's nice to be so close in proximity. So yes, I currently work for ACES as the Director of Research and Career Support, have been here for about a year and a half. I spent the last 16 years in higher education prior to coming to ACES in various roles, from student affairs work to diversity, equity, and inclusion work, um, primarily centering Indigenous students and indigeneity and my own Cherokee epistemologies in that work that I do. So a lot of my research interests that'll really set the foundation for our conversation today centers around that my background and mm-hmm. also my own epistemologies within the academy. Um, so really, as Nadia mentioned, I love to look at any ways and centering research that seeks to decolonize and indigenize um, STEM academic and workspaces. So that's a lot of the work that I actually get to do now as I feel like my career's come full circle to ACES. Mm-hmm. Years ago, when I worked at my one of my former institutions, I actually was an ACES college chapter advisor. And so for folks who aren't really familiar with who ACES is, uh, we've been around. We're actually having our 45th anniversary this year. And we have over 5,900 individual members as a part of this national nonprofit that looks at centering Indigenous peoples in STEM and advancing us and providing support. Uh, We have 230 affiliated pre-college schools, 196 chartered colleges and university chapters. And most recently, we've been adding tribal chapters with three. And we have 18 professional chapters around the U.S. and Canada, which is a very big growing group. And so to your question in regards to, you know, serving Native students in STEM, and I can mention some of the research that we already know. And I will say that most of the published research out there, um, unfortunately, looks at the deficit lens, um, which is that recent stats show we are the the group that earns the least amount of science mm-hmm. and engineering degrees. Latest mm-hmm. stats show we're at about 0.6%. And then in engineering, we're at 0.3%. Now, honestly, that should be pretty alarming to folks to hear those mm-hmm. stats. Right. Um, but I will say that the positive spin on that 
is that we see, and from what we've learned from talking to students and professionals and various research projects, is that our identities, our various tribal identities, village identities, are a source of pride within the profession because we actually bring some very unique assets to STEM. Um, I know that giving back and nation building are very important concepts for us um, mm -hmm. that are centered in our work. And I don't just mean giving back in the form of like service, that sort of thing. I mean, mm -hmm. giving back to our tribal nations and always thinking about generations that came before us and those that are coming after us. Sure. Um, one of the former principal chiefs of the Cherokee Nation, Wilma Mankiller, who you know now is featured on the quarter, mm -hmm. um, always right. mentioned that an Iroquois society, which is Cherokee society, that we're always thinking about the next seven generations and all the decisions that we make. And really that stems across various tribal cultures and the way that we think. Um, and so that is something unique that we bring, I think, to these spaces is that we're, and it's important too, I think, in, in flipping that and thinking about STEM workplaces and STEM, you know, research, academic curriculum spaces that really need to be working with our tribal nations and see what are needs that are important to our nations. Because that's the research that we want to do, you know, and I think oftentimes that's the disconnect when everybody's like, well, how do we recruit more Native students or how do we get more Native students in STEM just in general, mm -hmm. you know, Native professionals, right. and then how do we keep them? You know, well, that's a big part of it. It's, it's first of all, recognizing our indigeneity, not being mm -hmm. dismissive of it, because we hear a lot of this conversation and narrative from STEM professionals. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also providing that space. And I would say it's the same all the way through from college, you know, to the profession is having those spaces to be who they are fully and to be recognized and integrating and recognizing indigenous and traditional ecological knowledges as legitimate forms of practice sure. within STEM spaces. So I think those right. are really big pieces that make us unique and valuable in the STEM workforce. Dr. Smith, mm -hmm. do you see um, the entrepreneurship lens also kind of being wrapped into the STEM research? And how do does the indigenous maybe population or indigenous kind of student population, how do they see themselves being part of the entrepreneurial spirit of, you know, the U.S. in terms of developing or creating products and services that might support the indigenous community from a tech perspective or from whatever, a STEM perspective? Oh, thank you for that question. I love that question, Nadia. Oh, gosh, we have, I would say if people get a chance, there's what's called Winds of Change magazine. And we actually have a lot of those uploaded on our ACES website, ACES.org, A-I-S-E-S.org. So um, we have students that, for instance, an example of that would be they're integrating their own native languages because that really is a big thing right now is bringing, keeping these alive as we're losing elders, right? That carry a lot of that generational wisdom and knowledge of many languages that are dying off in some respects. So there's this um, effort to really revitalize those and make sure that we're continuing to teach those to future generation. And they're integrating that into tech with like coding, using mm -hmm. their own mm -hmm. languages within technology. Okay. 
And so I've, I've talked with some students that are in computer science, data analytics, you know, various fields like that, that are doing that very work, bringing like say Diné languages um, within the coding aspect, which is phenomenal. Bringing gaming, gaming's gotten really big right now too, I would say, another industry oh, that cool. continues to flourish and that we have several indigenous students starting to break through in that industry. Um, and create characters that look like them, adding the languages there. Just recently, I had a, a colleague and scholar friend, Dr. Amanda Ticini, who's Dene, and she um, helped write a new Marvel, Marvel characters, a whole series of indigenous mm. superheroes. Like, how cool oh, is that? Cool. That is really uh, cool. That she's getting to do this work. And so, I mean, it just goes to show there's so much being done. We have a student that I want to highlight it was on one of the covers of our Winds of Change magazine recently. Her name's Danielle Boyer. And I know she's like in her early 20s. She's Ojibwe from up north. She launched this nonprofit called the STEAM Connection, right? So STEAM, mm -hmm. now we're adding arts in there along mm -hmm. with STEM yep. in 2019. And so what one of the biggest things that she's most known for is her robot kit that she was able to manufacture for only $18.95. Wow. Now, if oh, you wow. look at what they often cost, they're over like $500 to manufacture. Oh, and wow. she's already yep. distributed over 4,500 of these kits to children for free and primarily to girls and BIPOC students. And this has been a complete game changer in rural and indigenous locations, you know, that do not have internet as it works without Wi-Fi. So this wow. has been huge to that access, right, piece, which is often, you know, an issue. Well, we're not thinking mm -hmm. about these issues, that, particularly when COVID hit, for instance, that many of our communities, when we're forced to use Wi-Fi and be in these virtual settings, we're struggling, you know, to right. even access coursework and, and be able yeah. to do the things they needed to do. So that just shows one young person there. Mm -hmm. Um, an indigenous woman doing such amazing work through her nonprofit that she started. Yeah. Incredible. I love that example. And, you know, just keep in keeping with that, you know, I wonder if you have other examples. You've mentioned how indigenous uh, communities or in particular will think many generations, right? The thinking is, is much mm -hmm. longer term. Obviously, our tech community that we normally think of here in the United States is probably not so probably a little bit more uh, short-sighted in the way that they do things. And so how would that manifest itself or what other examples or, or stories you have of, of how that shows up in some of the work that you do? Some things I want to mention, I want to talk about another project that we have that we're doing right now um, that is something that I think is really helpful for those that are working in any kind of area of industry. So oftentimes in the conversation too, even amongst, you know, women in STEM, for instance, indigenous women are left out of that conversation. So we know kind of across the board, indigenous students and professionals are lumped in with other groups within data and statistics, or oftentimes they're completely just invisibilized because of that, because they're left out or they're lumped in. I want to preface with saying to researchers, those that are pulling data, that even if our group is small, you know, it's a small but mighty group and it's important to still name us and to include us in that work. Mm -hmm. So we have this, ACES was fortunate to have this new project called Loose 
Rematriation Indigenous Women in STEM Leadership Program. So this is the Henry Luce Foundation, and they funded us last year for $25,000 for this planning grant. And it was basically to do all of this research, you know, working with our Indigenous women to look and understand at what are their experiences within STEM workplaces with advancement. And, you know, what are ways that we can continue to support them if we wanted to create a program to support Indigenous women in STEM? And so some of the things that we were able to find were that, you know, some of the challenges were that they run into slower advancement. They run into discrimination, microaggressions all the time. Mm -hmm. They feel a lack of mentorship and support. Um, oftentimes in these workplace settings, there's no ERGs, you know, which are employee resource groups. Right. And that's problematic. Or if there are, they're not well organized. And so something that we're doing in this next cycle is we just were awarded from Luce a second year grant for $250,000 wow. that helps us actually implement and execute this program at our some of our upcoming events. So we have a leadership summit in April, and then our major annual conference is always in the fall, in October, November timeframe, typically. And okay. so we're going to be implementing a program this year with this grant to help support these Indigenous women through cultural values and understanding and to provide that mentorship piece, that community, that network, um, the coaching and professional development topics that they need to hear to help them advance. Mm -hmm. And then the second piece of that with employers is we're actually going to be creating a resource guide for them as well, too, in addition to some trainings that will offer how do we center Indigenous women in the workplace and their experiences. And how do we better equip them to advance in these spaces? Um, and how do you fantastic. create an, an employee resource group or mentor program that will support them? So that's that some of the things so that, that we're working on within ACES right now. That's a really cool project that I'm so excited to be leading with other team members right now throughout 2023. Very cool. That is much needed. I'm curious, how does the United States compare in terms of support for Indigenous communities in narrowing um, educational achievement gaps? I'm not sure that there's a whole lot of data comparing that, but I will just say, because we've really built out, and I look at a lot of our First Nations relatives up in Canada, Canada is honestly a great model for how we should okay. be doing things within the U.S., um, and they've started several like projects that are in that same realm of like rematriation and even in some cases giving some land back, offering scholarships, full ride scholarships for indigenous students whose land they're on. Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen a few institutions within the U.S. actually doing the same, offering full okay. tuition for students from those local tribes. These are important avenues that you know, places are starting to make these changes as a sense of reconciliation, if you will. Um, but Canada, I would say, is one that we always look to. And we've just we've started growing a big membership for ACES within Canada. This year, we're going to be hosting our Canada gathering in March, March 3rd through 5th in Vancouver. And their start, but they actually looked to us because they said, we really want to start some ACES chapters and get that support going 
um, for STEM members within our community. We can do that better within across Canada. Um, but I think just as far as how they center Indigenous knowledge, honestly, mm. within their academy spaces in Canada, a lot of the leading literature comes from the First Nations oh. folks. And I would even say New Zealand as well, mm. too, is one of the leaders with the Maori people. Awesome. And that's, I think, what we were thinking about was Canada. It looks like there's some innovative things mm-hmm. happening in Canada as well. So that's interesting to hear you say that. We, you've laid out some of the great things that the program that, that you're working on, some of the great innovations uh, from, from folks that you work with. And so we talk, we spent a lot of time on this show talking about startups, venture capital. So swing over to the other side, right? And what do you see in terms of investment in innovation from, uh, in innovation from indigenous communities, from venture capital and, and other uh, uh, funding mechanisms? I think we're in a time now where Diversity, equity, and inclusion is being more centered, I hope, more than just a checklist item, because sometimes we combat some of that. Uh, but I think we're running into, too, that there is a want and need to learn more about how to indigenize STEM and the workplace and, you know, how does this get integrated into projects and all of that Um, So I think there is a lot of opportunity we're seeing, at least I'll say on the ACES side, because that's what I can speak to, is that when we're applying for this grant, these grants, I mean, we're putting a lot of effort in centering our own methodologies as well, too, and how we do the research within our communities and with um, instead of on. Right. Because for since time memorial research, um, according to Linda to Y. Smith, is like the dirtiest word in indigenous world's vocabulary because of how it's been very extractual. And it's been non-indigenous people coming in, you know, extracting research from us and not giving back and being reciprocal in that way. So I think now that we're we're totally poised and positioned to be in a time where we can actually share that knowledge has been passed down for generations that hasn't necessarily been written about either because a lot of our stories have been oral and passed down through elders. And all of this knowledge has then come in that way too. So we also have to be, I think, careful in how we're sharing some of these sacred knowledges and traditions but there's a lot of good that we can bring because we have a totally different perspective on the world right? and with how we bring our businesses about. So if you think about these notions, what I call uh, the four R's. So this has been in research from Canadian relatives years and years ago, the four R's, which is like relevance, responsibility, relationality, and reciprocity. So those are some guiding principles that I think honestly guide a lot of the, um, you know, the reasons we go into these fields and what we would bring then through our own businesses and entrepreneurship efforts. And that's, that makes it very strong for us because when we're looking at bringing in consultants and things like that within ACES too, we want to look at those that are indigenous led you know, that can see things from our perspective as well, too. So there's a need for more of those, I would say, to bring to tribal communities as well, because tribal nations are also, they want to pull from the knowledge from their own people, you know, or those that are indigenous and get it and understand what is relevant in this case to their needs. 
And so I would say that's a lot of the strength for investment. And we're seeing more and more people see that. I think that there is a need and a very big gap, not only gaps in the literature and gaps in the workforce, right? We're seeing that across the board that there's a need. Um, and so I think investors are, you know, hopefully would be smart to be looking into supporting these efforts. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have had a lot of ease with putting in grants and getting those funded because I think there is that nice. need to address these gaps. Great. Love that. Dr. Smith, mm-hmm. how how can our community, like our listeners, be of support to you and um, ACES's overall mission? I would say one of the ways is you can give to ACES. Um, All of that's on our website. Um, Memberships are, you know, something that we're fortunate to offer are that memberships are completely free to all college students. Professionals, it's a very low, I think like $65. But everybody else, and we even have, like I said, high school chapters as well too, and they're all free. Right. Um, And then we offer a lot of scholarships. So we actually have scholarships that are fully funded by, you know, both corporate nonprofits um, that we give out every year. And those are about to open here on January 31st. And so I really want to encourage folks to apply for those. Um, But that's also a way that a lot of folks giving can help us out. And then lastly, we have our NACIF, our Native American science and engineering career fair that's coming up and that's for fifth or 12th grade students but we always need volunteers and judges mm-hmm. as well okay. um so if you look up nasef n-a-i-s-e-f on our website we have information there but that this year it's april 1st and it's in stillwater oklahoma um, at oklahoma state university's campus incredible it's that's so great and so happy to hear there's um things that you folks are working on that we have access to. Um, And so I would encourage our listeners to definitely check out all of the resources that you've provided. Um, Well, Dr. Tiffany Smith, it has been such a pleasure and I'm so glad that you joined us. Thank you um, for for joining us on Inclusive Collective this week. Um, Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back with our calm reflections and our raves and rants. Welcome back. We just finished our conversation with Dr. Tiffany Smith and are at the Converflections slash Ransom Ravis portion of the show. Nadia, what did you take away from our conversation with Dr. Smith? I thought it was great. I I mean, we could have spent a whole day with her. Sure. Um, I learned a lot and I'm really impressed by this, by ACES and the organization in terms of what they do, who they affiliate with, who they support the awareness that they are doing. And I also just want to acknowledge that she referenced um, in our conversation that she practices like where we live, we learn and where we lead and likes to acknowledge kind of the give recognition to the native lands that we might be sitting on, Mm -hmm. that we are sitting on. And one of the websites, she didn't share this um, podcast, but just want to share right now. We'll make sure we put it in the show notes the website native-land.ca that would uh, give you insight. You could type in your city, your zip code, and we'll give you insight into the local nations um, that you are 
sitting on. Excellent. Yeah. And we're going to post a lot of resources that Dr. Smith gave us, uh, some of the things that were, that were on, on the show and then also that we talked about offline. So we're going to have a ton of resources from Dr. Smith. So thank you so much to Dr. Smith. Nadia, should we, uh, should we rant and rave? Before we get out of here, let's run ramp. We're like so, so I think you should go first because we always end up. You're do so we flipped the coin. Wah, wah. You got I'm, yeah, because I'm you got the rant, and I feel like you should go first because I don't want to end on a sad note. Okay, so why don't you go first? All with right, the rant? all right. So yeah, you don't want to end on a sad or a mad note, right? So this week, yeah, the, totally. The, the Florida Department of Education said it would not allow high school students to take or receive college credit for an AP course on African-American studies. Fireman said there was no educational value to the course and the course content, but did not lay out specific objections or even have an official, like an actual person, sign that order. This is from the Ron DeSantis administration. <laughs> one, of my, one of my favorite characters. Uh, but but my rant, but I mean, that's what my rant is about, right? The fact that, yeah. so whenever, so the, no one signed the order. Obviously, no one wants to take take uh, responsibility for it. Whenever you read yeah. one of these articles about anti-wokeness, you don't even know what they're talking about. And it's very yeah. clear that they don't know what they're talking about. There's no argument. There's yeah. no logic. There's no understanding of what they're upset about. I saw yeah. an article recently along these lines that uh, said that DEI was the marketing trade name for critical race theory. So I looked up the guy and of course, yeah. he had no background in organizational theory, in management science had never been in a, inside of a business where it probably ever interacted with a person who does uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, or accessibility work as well. Mm -hmm. And so if DEI is a trade name for anything, it's really the trade name for good management, right? As the concepts yeah. that we work with all the time have been around forever, and they are uh, you know, more precisely associated with good and effective leadership. So uh, that, is my, that is my rant. That's, I love that rant. I love that you call Ron DeSantis a character. I know how much you dislike him. Oh, no, no, um, no. He's just... Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I give everyone a chance, you know, but... Uh, you give everybody a chance. That yeah. is true. I will say that is yeah, a true statement. Yeah. Um, okay. So let me move on to my rave here. So Jacinda Ardern, Prime Minister of New Zealand, is resigning from office effective in February. She shared with reporters yesterday that... Her last day would be in February as prime minister after five years, five and a half years mm. um, of being in office. She did state, and I just want to make it very clear because there's different, um, I feel like news headlines are distorting her message. Um, but she is uh, saying, I know what this job takes and I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. It is that simple. And I just think what a really great role model what a really great leader who accomplished a lot in New Zealand in five and a half years. Um, and I am really glad that um, she recognizes that, she, you know, she can no longer offer New Zealand what it needs um, and is, is resigning and stepping down. Um, so wish her well. She wants to come on the podcast. Yeah. We'd love to have her. Yeah. <laughs> Open invitation. Open invitation. Um, and that is it for this week. Inclusive Collective is a production of Rafilion Media. We would love to hear from you folks. So send us your feedback at inclusivecollective at rafilion.com. 
You can send, uh, you can find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and rate us um, wherever you get your podcast today. If you want to get in touch with us for consulting services, check me out at nasconsultants.com and rob at tacanoconsulting.com. Um, Thanks again to our guest, Dr. Tiffany Smith of ASIS. We will be back next week. Bye, Rob. Later.